welcome to this next episode of the Decarb Connect podcast. And I'm really very pleased to welcome Ravi Gurumurthy, who's the chief executive of Nesta, to join me today. And this year, they have published their 10-year strategy, which looks at how to leverage mission-led innovation to improve the lives of millions across the UK. And one key component of that is looking at the impact of climate on the on, on society and looking for uh, ways in which they can influence uh, good best practice moving forward. So Ravi, you, you have had a really interesting career spanning both uh, government roles, uh, you were involved as a, a leader in the International Rescue Committee and their innovation lab there, and now you're at Nesta. So why don't you just sort of fill in the gaps in that introduction and give a bit of a sense about, about how you've arrived at this moment in time. Thank you, Alex, and uh, thank you for having me on. Um, so this is my third time in my career where I'm starting to focus on climate change. And I was just reflecting before this podcast on, on how things have changed because I first started working on this back in 2006 when I was an advisor to David Miliband. And we suddenly had this really unique moment where um, the parties, Conservative and Labour, were fighting for the Green vote. Um, you had this, the Stern report about to come out and Al Gore publishing his movie, and there suddenly felt to be a lot of momentum. And at that point, we took quite a lot of advantage and got the Climate Change Act in place. And I was really quite heavily involved in trying to rush that through. Um, and one reflection, actually, is about the change in ambition between then and now. Because at the time, we had an ambition which was about 60, a reduction of in emissions by 60%. And then during the course of that uh, bill being progressed through Parliament, it went up to 80% and now we're at net zero. And we've had a lot of ratcheting up of commitments and ambition, perhaps not quite as much um, progress in terms of, uh, of, uh, of actual policies, but uh, we're, in a, we're in a very different place, I think, than 15 years ago. Yeah, definitely. I, I... I know we, we are sort of looking at some similar issues, but from different lenses, it feels that there has been another kind of big push uh, towards uh, real activity around decarbonisation. And yes, that's partly about policy, but interestingly, I think more and more happening that isn't so dependent or isn't only dependent on that as a lever. I mean, that's, I, I mean when I worked on climate change the last time, it was actually from 2010 to 2013, and I was in charge of the UK government's um, program to try and meet the climate change targets that we had and, and trying to set new targets like carbon, carbon budget four. And at that time, you'll remember post-financial crash, energy prices were spiking and David Cameron had gone from wanting to be the greenest government ever to saying, let's get rid of all this green crap, as he, as he put it. And it was really interesting how at the time, it really felt like the green agenda was under siege. Um, the government didn't really want to be doing the kind of bold things that were necessary. Whereas you think now, again, it feels like um, there's a lot of momentum, a lot of cross-party consensus, and particularly off the back of big progress actually in the electricity sector and in, and in batteries and in cars, the debate feels different. And it also feels broader. You feel like there's momentum in, in industry and uh, within amongst citizens as well. Uh, I know when your team and I were talking about involving you on a podcast that their point was, well, Ravi's going to tell you about the concerns for the UK simply not being on track for net zero. What's our starting premise for this discussion? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is actually we've done pretty well. So <laughs> we are 40% down on 1990 emissions. And I think no country in the G20 has seen such a big reduction in emissions. Um, and we've also seen pretty dramatic progress in the last decade on things like uh, 
renewable electricity and batteries and EVs. When I was in the Energy and Climate Change Department in 10 years ago, I would not have expected such progress, particularly on renewable energy, um, but also actually on EVs. So yes, we, we've seen some substantial progress, but when you look at what we really need to be doing, given the increased ambition that we've got of net zero, it really isn't anywhere near enough. And in particular, while we've seen a lot of progress in those two sectors, which are going, which are really, which have got momentum, electric cars and um, renewable electricity, all the difficult areas that were stuck a decade ago are still pretty stuck. And I feel like we've almost had a bit of a lost decade when it comes to renewable heat or carbon capture and storage or um, agriculture and aviation demand. None of those issues are really being grasped. Um, even where you've got ambitious commitments, for instance, on heat pumps, there are big figures touted, I think 600,000 heat pumps to be rolled out uh, every year in 2028, but only about 30,000 currently. There's no real sense of a plan or program to get from where we are now to where we want to be. Uh, and then in other areas, I think we've just not even got the, the level of ambition required, for instance, on hydrogen production or uh, district heat networks. So, yeah, I think um, we've had a lot of progress, but the next leg of the journey is much, much harder. It involves a lot more consumer change uh, in terms of what we drive and how we heat our homes and how we use electricity. And I just worry we've not prepared the ground in the last decade to really start accelerating in the 2020s. OK, so so there has been progress, there has been some progress and there has been some progress towards decarbonisation of home heating. What is the story around domestic heating and what proportion of CO2 comes from that source and, and what what really needs to be happening to start getting ahead of climate change? So 17 percent of our emissions come from um, heating buildings and that's space heating in buildings. There's probably another two percent or so from hot water in those buildings. So, you know, roughly 20 percent of UK uh, emissions from this area. And what I think is difficult, particularly for the UK compared to others, is that we actually have quite a good system in place already. So the fact that we have this gas grid means that we've enjoyed pretty cheap, effective heating for many years. And I think it makes it harder for us to sort of leap to a uh, heat pump type future uh, that other countries like Finland or Germany already are because they they don't have the kind of the effectiveness and efficiency of the gas grid already in place. What is it that you think needs to happen? So first, there are a whole set of technologies that we need to adopt in homes. And one of the things I think we've failed to address in the last 10 years is more clarity about what technologies will work for what household types. Um, and we've not really had the technology race that one would have hoped in the last decade. And there are still big open questions about the degree to which we're going to need air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps versus, um, for instance, district heating and heat networks, or even some role for hydrogen um, in that future as well. So I think there are debates about that future. Um, and it's quite, sometimes quite hard to resolve because it's not as though you could just have a free for all and allow whatever technology to run because there are big consequences. Um, you know, if you start going for electrification of heat, then you have to gear up the grid and the electricity capacity cope with that. If you if you want to sort of start injecting hydrogen into the pipes, um, you know that's a, a huge decision which would mean retaining our gas infrastructure for a lot longer. So you can't really allow for a total free for all. And I think we are going to have to try and make some slightly bigger decisions quicker about the balance between those different um, technologies. I'd also just flag up that 
as well as the, the big one-off decisions to switch out our boilers for some other technology, there are also big ongoing behaviors that we need to shift. So one, I think we need to be much smarter about how we heat our homes. So for instance, room by room heating controls can have a huge impact. If you look at the impact that insulation would make versus just lowering the average temperature in our homes by having smart room by room thermostats, actually it's the latter that can make a bigger difference, even if the former is needed to actually make heat pumps more effective given uh, and make our homes more thermally efficient. So that's one aspect of behavior change facilitated by technology. I think the other big side of this is thinking about how we can shift demand for electricity. So if we electrify our heating and transport, we may need two or three times the electricity capacity we have currently. And um, that is gonna be substantially affected by whether we heat our, our, our homes and charge our cars at the right moment. And if we don't get that right, we'll actually have to strengthen our grid and uh, increase our electricity capacity substantially. If we do get it right and smooth that peak load, we can do this transition in a much more cheap, effective way. And I think one question that is open is the extent to which we're going to rely purely on automation, on smart controls that optimize when you charge your car and switch your um, dishwasher on, versus whether we as individuals can behave and do that ourselves without the automation uh, being in place. I guess I guess the challenge is we tend to view it as it is a service that someone else manages. It comes magically into the home. We don't really think about it that much. So I suppose part of the behaviour change is also how do we get, get a bit more proactive about something that's so fundamental to our to our own little worlds. Um, I guess the second thought I have while you're talking is when we talk about things like heat pumps and all those other new technologies, I know that there are pockets of the community where these are big discussions all the time, but there's swathes of the UK and swathes of global or Western countries, you know, where these are just not things that people think about. How do you get populations, communities, individuals to actually engage with the issue and not just, not only make it a government-led issue, but for it to be a, a community-led issue as well? Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's, if you ask people about gas central heating, I think most people actually don't realise that this is a uh, a contributor to climate change and there are CO2 emissions at, at the end of this, awareness of technologies like heat pumps are incredibly low. So there's a big journey to go on. I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that you have to make people super conscious of the climate change effects of these technologies, because I don't, I don't think that's the route to actually getting the widespread adoption. I think we have to make these technologies cheap and uh, beneficial to consumers and just attractive rather than having to convince people it's the green thing and therefore let's do the green thing. And low friction to actually get into your property. Exactly. And, and you sort of mentioned this tension between um, you know, big government regulation and doing it through, through that versus uh, making this popular and attractive to consumers. And I think we'll need both. But the crucial thing is that um, it's very, very difficult to regulate very firmly against the grain of consumer demand. So right now, I think it's possible for the government to have this commitment by 2030 to phase out the sale of petrol and diesel cars, because over the last 10 years, attitudes towards electric cars have totally changed. You know, you have, you know, your Jeremy Clarkson's, et cetera, thinking this is a, a cool, fast, exciting consumer proposition. We're not anywhere near that for, for heat pumps. And so, um, while you can possibly signal a phase out now, I think you'd get a, a consumer backlash unless we can get some momentum, we can get some early adopters shifting the perception of these technologies.
let, let's come around to the other part of this, which is industry itself. So utilities and other service providers and their role in it, the specifics of how they need to respond. Well, first of all, um, because you've had um, some quite bad, bad policies in the last 10 years, with lots of stop start, like the Green Homes Grant, problems with the renewable heat incentive, the failure of the Green Deal, you've got a real lack of confidence amongst the supply chain. You would, you would have to be, you'd have to have a very strong risk appetite right now to bet your whole business model on low carbon heat. And that is a substantial problem, obviously, if we're going to try and get to hundreds of thousands of heat pumps being rolled out, the supply chain's got to mobilise really heavily. And that's why I actually think that this combination of government regulation and um, building early momentum is really, really important. But when it comes to the, the actual role of, say, energy companies and other uh, industries, it's worth just thinking about whether a service or subscription model for heating and electricity can start to become viable and attractive and possibly necessary. And just think about it from the consumer perspective. If you're asking consumers to invest maybe £10,000 in a, in a heat pump uh, and maybe require them to change their radiators or, or, or change other aspects of their home, that's a massive ask. It's a big upfront cost. It's a big source of anxiety and risk if you're installing something novel. Um, and the sheer hassle factor is going to be huge. So I think the potential for an intermediary to come in and say, you know, we'll take away the upfront cost, we'll manage this end-to-end -end process for you, and crucially, we'll almost optimise the use of this heat and electricity over time and help you manage demand, could be a very, very attractive proposition rather than you having to do that yourself. So I think a lot of companies have been talking about energy um, as a service rather than a product for years it may now well be the time where those business models come into play. And I think it will particularly come into play around time of use of electricity. So if government starts to put in more aggressive incentives and Ofgem shifts their tariff structure so that um, you do get rewarded as a consumer for when you use electricity, I think that the, the role of intermediaries in shifting demand could become quite attractive. It's interesting how that, that business model is reflected in some of the discussions in, in the industrial sphere as well, this kind of idea of carbon capture as service or energy efficiency as service or, or so forth. It's the same deal, isn't it? It's the challenge of the big upfront cost uh, and the risk that that implies, whether you're a consumer or whether you're industry. Already in the commercial um, sector for, for, for buildings, you have intermediaries come in and, and basically manage things on consumers' behalf. You don't tend to have that in, in, in residential housing. Um, and But I, I think there will be people getting into the market. There is an interesting question of trust, however. So do you trust your energy company, who you think makes more money out of you, the more money, the more energy you consume, to come and sort of flip their business model and be actually helping you save? It seems very counterintuitive. Um, and that's where I think there is an interesting race between the incumbents, those who you've got an existing relationship with, but who you may not trust to actually save you energy, and the role of entirely new intermediaries coming in and disrupting the market. Okay, and then so coming back to, to Nesta then, so what, what is the role that you see you playing, the, the wider team as a whole? How, how do you fit into this discussion and, and what needs to happen? So one of the reasons why we started to get interested in doing work on climate change was the fact that we think the next decade is about consumers. It's really about shifting um, consumer preferences and and. Uh, behavior around energy so that the electric home that people will have where they charge their car and use their heat pump and shift their times of use 
um, is quite a different consumer expectation than we currently have. And what Nesta is, uh, is building in terms of our capabilities, our capabilities in design, behavioral science, and data science. And while you know, we are not the people to sort of bring the engineering expertise or um, shift government's uh, regulation and tax, what we can do is hope to build the momentum around early adoption. So let's imagine we do get some strong signals and subsidies and regulation from government. How do we get uh, some lift off by designing um, ways of shifting consumer behavior, using data to target early adopters um, and redesign the business models that um, could drive change. And, and so there are two ways in which, well, three ways in which we're trying to work to try and address this. One, being an innovation partner. So we are looking to partner with um, energy companies, other companies to try out ways of um, shifting behavior and uh, getting people interested in low carbon heat. So that's one role we see for ourselves. And in particular, we'd like to develop rigorous evidence around what works in that respect. So let's not just conduct trials, but conduct trials that have randomized control, uh, randomization, so you can actually prove out what works um, and, and therefore uh, make the case to governments and others that we need to scale that. So innovation partnering is the first role. We secondly have this role called Venture Builder, where Nesta has an endowment um, and we are keen to potentially invest in either existing um, organizations at an early stage or found new organizations that can um, you know, make this an opportunity and, and, and turn the kind of insights we're generating on the ground into new business models. And then the third role we see for ourselves is what we're calling a system shaper, where all the work we're doing on the ground with partners or supporting new ventures, we want to be able to feed that back to shape policy and regulation so that it is enabling these new business models to occur. And just let me say a bit more on that, because I think one of the problems we have is that um, everything is so interdependent and connected. So a business model for an energy service company will be highly affected by the tariff structure that Ofgem chooses or the extent to which they decide that we just need to invest massively in the networks and, and grid infrastructure rather than demand side response. That will potentially crowd out the incentives for different business models. So unless we evolve regulation with um, the consumer experience and business models hand in hand, I think we may not get to the right settlement. Can I go back to something you said that, you know, a little earlier you were talking about how there, there was this moment in time in 2006, 2008, where there was this kind of cross-party engagement. Do you, do you feel that now? I mean, obviously the current government talk a lot about their 10-point plan and other things, but do you perceive that there is true kind of re-engagement in that? I think we're in a very um, healthy, positive moment at the mo uh, politically, um, and it's off the back of, as I said, strong consumer support, strong push around environmental, social governance concerns from business, um, and you know both parties seeing um, green jobs as a bit of an opportunity. Um, and the buildup of things like an offshore wind industry or the recent announcement of um, you know batteries from for Nissan allow politicians to ally themselves with future jobs, which is why I think this is now politically much more attractive than 10 years ago when um, you almost just had the pain of more subsidies and more energy bills as opposed to the gain of, of new jobs. And you've got enough now to make that attractive. What I worry about is that we are now at the moment where the more difficult asks of consumers are gonna to have to be made. So we're gonna to have to start asking consumers to shift how they use their uh, energy and, and, and in their homes. And at that point, if it's managed badly, we could have a backlash. 
Um, and while I think there is a really good healthy consensus right now, it could be brittle. It doesn't take much, you know, if energy bills rose or we face another recession um, or we somehow um, ask too much of people too soon, um, then I think it, it does risk a big backlash. There's always this ongoing conversation around uh, decarbonisation of energy about the kind of equitable nature of that and are we actually sharing the cost appropriately, right? And I'm sure that must be on your mind in this space as well. Well, exactly. Now, now if you forced every consumer over the next 10 to 15 years to get rid of their fossil fuel uh, use in their home, which I think is what we have to do, you have to be able to support um, consumers to do that in a cost-effective manner. So one example of that is at the moment, all the subsidies we put in place in the last decade to build new electricity capacity and insulate homes were all added on to our electricity bill. So billions of pounds are on consumers' electricity bill to pay for those renewable subsidies. And yet at the same time, we're trying to shift people from gas to electricity. And that creates a really difficult incentive. If you are gonna push people to do that, it's hard, particularly for those in fuel poverty. And I think revisiting where that subsidy is charged to, and whether it should be charged onto general taxation, for instance, rather than um, electricity bills is well worth doing if you're going to maintain public support for this transition. I mean, you've talked through a number of different elements of this, but for you, what do you see as that kind of most essential and whether it's essential in the way that Nestor engages or the things that government must do or whatever, what, what is it that is essential next 12 to 18 months versus more medium term? So I actually think that we need to start getting a long term policy framework in place for heat. And um, in some ways, if we hadn't had the um, <laughs> we hadn't botched up the last 10 years on this policy, you could probably buy yourself a bit more time and do things later on. But actually, you need now a signal that we are serious about phasing out um, gas boilers. So some sort of regulatory signal about a phase out. It can be quite a long term timescale. Um, and possibly we could ratchet that down over time if we get some momentum. But I think we have to have that clarity in the same way that we have for cars that we're phasing out boilers. Um, secondly, I think we have to do something about the price. As I said, if we can um, lower the price of electricity relative to gas, it could potentially make um, uh, the, the, the heat pumps more cost effective, but also looking at things like um, the time of use and how far we can incentivize um, electricity to be used off peak. But the third thing is a really concerted effort to build that early adoption. So to give you one example, there are obviously thousands of people who fit boilers, and we've been talking to them recently, and often they're not the people who are the most healthy advocates of heat pumps. They probably may, may not actually be qualified to do it themselves. It will cost them hundreds of pounds to actually get qualified. They're not necessarily sure that it's worth their time. They probably don't have heat pumps in their own home. So I think my, um, my sort of uh, daft subsidy idea for you um, for the next 12 months would be to give every person who can fit a, a gas boiler a heat pump free because we need a sort of nucleus of, of advocates and who better to advocate for this policy than the people who are actually going to come to your home and tell you what to do. And uh, from our own sort of conversations with consumers, you know, that's who they get their advice from in an emergency. Uh, and if we've not got that frontline army of people who are advocating this change, we won't get off the ground. Great. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for, for joining us. I feel very lucky to have had someone who brings this combination of both energy policy, crisis management and yeah, a fascinating range of experience to bring to bear on this. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much, Alex.